Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website, located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community, because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm here with the lovely Noah Gardner. Uh, Noah is an old friend of mine. He is a scientist and he has lived with type 1 diabetes since he was 12. So Noah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. So why don't you give us the rundown quickly and tell us about when and how you first realized that you had diabetes and sort of how it all manifested. Yeah, I mean, so diabetes is one of those things, type 1 diabetes is one of those things where, um, it kind of comes on slowly and then all of a sudden, right? Um, so I was in sixth grade, 12 years old. Uh, one of the classic symptoms is you're, you have to go to the, you have to pee a lot, basically, right? Your blood sugars are getting really high. One way to get rid of sugar in the blood is to pass it through your kidneys and then out through the urine. So um, peeing a lot, couldn't sleep, you know, up probably 50 times a night, panic and crying, not knowing what's going on. My parents had enough of an idea that maybe something was wrong, um, but not fully wanting to, maybe not fully wanting to accept it or not quite sure. And then I remember there was one morning I got up ready to go to school, went down for for breakfast and passed out at the breakfast table. Um, and that was, that was it. You know, I woke up, um, came to in a cold sweat, went to the, my pediatrician at the time. And it was pretty immediate once we explained the symptoms that I had to go to the, you know, the emergency room and, and what they do is they check your blood sugar just straight up in the normal, normal range for somebody without diabetes is somewhere between 70 and 130. Um, and mine was probably about 800, right? So yeah. on that scale, definitely it's, it's a real quick diagnosis as soon as, as soon as you get tested. So, so the, the symptoms were pretty obvious to the doctor, it sounds like, and they were able to peg that you had diabetes just based on the symptoms, right? 
Pretty much. And then, you know, you have to go down to the hospital and they do the official, the official test. Um, now one of the things that they do is they look for, um, auto antibodies against, you know, so, so type one diabetes is your immune system is attacking the, the beta cells that produce the insulin, right. um, that regulates your blood sugar. Um, and so being able to then test for those antibodies now to confirm that it's type one, especially with the rise of a lot of other metabolic disorders that may manifest similar to type one diabetes and then type two, and then there's a type one and a half. And it's just, there are, um, lots of different ways. Yeah. Lots of different things that it could be, but you know, classic symptoms for type one is you're a kid you're peeing a lot. Um, you don't feel good. Uh, loss of consciousness can be part of it. And, and then the, actually getting tested for your, what your blood sugar level actually is. Wow. So when you got this diagnosis, was there, is it, I mean, I don't know a ton about type one diabetes. I know you're much more of an expert than I am. Um, is it something that your family may have suspected based on genetics or is it something that, that just sort of came on? Do we know what caused it? So type, you know, type one is, uh, it's a genetic disease, right? So usually it's, it's prevalent in families. Um, in my case, there was no one in my family that we knew of, um, who ever had it. Um, so it was kind of. You know, that's one of the first things that they ask you is, is there anyone in your family that has it um, to try to make sense of where it's coming from and all that kind of stuff. But for me, there was nothing. Um, so it was kind of out of the blue yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Wow. That's so crazy. So but what, you know, what, as I was saying, it's, it's a, the audit, your immune system is attacking these, these beta cells that are producing the insulin. Um, and what, actually causes that trigger right because you have a gene that that suggests that maybe you're going to get type one but some people get it some people don't people get it at different times throughout life um a lot of research has gone into looking into environmental factors that might contribute it contribute to it um a lot of times people will have you know will be sick you know just like a cold or a flu or something like that and that may trigger it um but you know that exact that exact trigger point is not necessarily known at this point, which seems to be true of a lot of autoimmune conditions as well. Right, um, and and sort of the rise. There's definitely been a rise in acknowledgement of these conditions by the medical community, so that more people are being diagnosed more quickly in certain cases. You know, yes, um, but also that there tends to be a genetic and an environmental factor. So it's sort of that combination of things, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, if I remember correctly, there was a research study that came out a few years ago that was um, looking at, you know, a, a wide host of, of data and suggesting that um, cleanliness when you're a kid can help rise to it. But whether that's causation or correlation, you know, it's one of these big longitudinal studies. Yeah. Um, well, so. they'd say that cleanliness helps with everything at that point. Yeah. <laughs> well, more, more, you know, because it's an autoimmune disease. Like, so the, you know, I have a kid now. I have a two and a half year old son, and um, where my wife and I are very conscious about letting him get dirty because it helps 
build a really good immune system. And yeah. one of the thoughts with, with type one is that maybe if you are heavily trying to keep your kid clean and not letting them get dirty, that their immune system doesn't build up well enough. And, but who knows, right? So, yeah. I think that I mean, people talk about that a lot um, in relation to peanut allergies, even, you know, mm, mm -hmm. won't allow parents to send their kids to school with like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because there's other kids who are, uh, who are allergic and so allergic, you know, that they go into anaphylactic shock and then those kids don't then get exposed to peanuts. And so exactly. everyone has an allergy. Yeah. So it is about that sort of micro uh, um, exposure, isn't it? Right. Right. So what was it like? Like, did, were you, super conscious of this diagnosis? Well, yeah, so uh, sixth grade, right? So sixth grade, so I was 12. Yeah, so um, definitely very conscious, right? Um, at sixth grade, you're starting to really see the world. You know, I had a girlfriend at the time, which, oh, Noah. you know, sixth grade girlfriend <laughs> means we talked on the phone a lot and that's, <laughs> that's about it, right? Um, uh, you know, so you're really conscious about the world around you. You're really starting to become the person you are. And um, yeah, being able to really know that pre-diabetes life versus all of a sudden, you know, you have type one diabetes. And at the time, it was all insulin injections, um, long acting insulin. Insulins have come a long way in terms of how well how well they work and now there's different technology like insulin pumps and stuff like that but at the time it was okay no sugary cereals no you know really cut back entirely on candy so that first halloween for me was terrible you know and and for me i remember very distinctly i have this memory of my last halloween um whereas had i been diagnosed at like you know, I have friends who had been diagnosed when they were little, little kids, and they don't know anything different. And so they both have their their benefits and their drawbacks. But it was really, really hard for me um, as a 12 year old to have to totally change my life. Yeah, I imagine. And I imagine it's hard for anyone at any stage to have to totally change their life. But especially as a kid where you go about your life as if you're never going to be sick. There's no real understanding of like, I could get sick with something later on. Um, Absolutely. Going from that carefree attitude to something very different from that. So what steps did you and your family take to, to keep you healthy? I know that you said that you cut back on sugars and that you were injecting insulin, but how has that developed over time? Yeah. I mean, so one technology has helped as i was mentioning like for for if you think about the long the long term of things went from um blood sugar testing that took about a minute to get a reading and now it takes five seconds to get a reading so just waiting for those numbers and the accuracy on being able to test your blood sugar um, has developed quite a bit people who are older than me will remember back in the time where you had to pee into a test tube and then boil the test tube and then add a tablet. And it would be, I think if I remember right, it would be like orange, green, or red, meaning you were good. You were in, you know, kind of high blood sugar or you were really high blood sugar. And that was the resolution. And that's people that I have met over the last couple of years. Um, so not that long ago. Um, 
you know, the nice, one of the nice things about, I'm kind of getting off subject of what you asked, but one of the nice things about type one diabetes compared to a lot of the other, um, um, illnesses that you, you talk about on your show is that the, it's really clear cut, right? So type one, you know, are no longer producing insulin. So you need to balance by giving insulin into your body and then balance the sugars on the other end. So it's, it's actually a pretty straightforward disease in terms of management. And therefore there's been huge rises in this technology of going from developing new types of insulin that may last different amounts of time to give people more flexibility. Um, I wear uh, an insulin pump that's connected to me at all, all times. I think so I get you a, got that when we were in college. I feel like I remember getting it then. I got it right before I went to college. My senior year, Valentine's Day, my senior year of high school. So romantic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very romantic. So I spent the entire day at the hospital and then brought flowers to my girlfriend at the time. And, and <laughs> it was my Valentine's Day. And uh, for better or worse, Valentine's Day is also my, my pump anniversary. So it's, it's still an extra happy day for me. So what is an insulin pump? Like, how does it work? Tell us, because there are going to be people listening who are not familiar with this at all. Yeah. So as I said, right, um, uh, someone with type 1 diabetes doesn't produce insulin at all anymore. And insulin is a, a, it's a protein in your blood that allows the sugar that you've eaten to enter your cells. So if you don't have insulin, the, um, the, the sugar builds up in your bloodstream and, and you can't metabolize it and your, your cells need that to be able to do all the things that they do to keep you alive and a human. Right. Um, so to get insulin, you do typically a subcutaneous injection. So you inject it into your, into your fat somewhere in your body. Um, what an insulin pump does is instead of having to do that, you put in, basically a, a catheter or a small, you know, uh, yeah, it's a small plastic catheter that goes into your, into your fat. Um, and then it's connected to a, an, a pump. And what that pump does is it slowly over the course of the day, just infuses insulin into your body or when you're going to go eat food, right? So when you eat food, you're, taking in a lot of sugar, a lot of carbohydrates, and you want to counteract that by giving it the insulin to um, help your cells process it. Um, so you would give a bigger, what is called a bolus, which is, you know, just a bigger push of insulin at the time. So what kind of rates you tell the pump to give is totally up to you. So it's really a lot of guess and check. So um, it's always been, what you do is you go and see your endocrinologist every three to four to six months, depending on how you're doing. You review your numbers and decide if you should bring the rates up or down at different points throughout the day. And really, it's a lot of guess and check. And, you know, there's a science to it, but a lot of it is good luck. <laughs> see yeah. what happens. And uh, we'll check in later. And yeah. it would be guess and check, too, if you were constantly checking your insulin and then injecting you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing. It's just more, um, immediate. It sounds like. Yeah, it's immediate. And, and, you know, I had the opportunity when I was in high school to go on the pump and it scared me to death. I waited a year because the nice thing about being on injections is you give these long acting insulins that, um, will cover you for hours at a time. And you don't think about it, whether or not that's the best method for you or not. 
it really depends on who you are and what your lifestyle is. Um, but you didn't have to think about it that much. You would give it. And if you went high, you went high. If you went low, you went low. And then at the next time you had to give insulin, you'd make adjustments. Uh, with the pump, it's a really, really fast acting insulin. And that's why you can infuse it. And it kind of just works all the time. Um, but since it's directly attached to you, if it were to come out or if it were a stall or if it were a clog, you'd be getting absolutely no insulin at all. Um, which means your blood sugar would go really, really high, which can lead to, you know, losing consciousness, having a stroke, um, having a seizure, being hospitalized. Um, so that type of responsibility for me when I was a junior in high school was really, really scary. Um, so I waited a year and, and, and then went on it then. And, and although it sounds like it gives you freedom, does it also create restrictions in other ways? Like, did it prevent you from like playing sports and, you know, like how bulky a thing is it that's sort of connected to you all? Uh, so the nice thing, insulin pumps are often confused with pagers. If people are old enough to remember what a pager is. Um, (laughs) so yeah, exactly. You and I are, um, maybe some of your listeners are not. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 uh, about the size of a little bit thicker than a cell phone and about half the size of a cell phone. Right. And it sits in your pocket pretty easily. Um, and it's attached to you at all times. So it's basically having an external pancreas, which is where your insulin is produced in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're tethered, you're tethered to an, into a device at all times. So you do lose some freedom, some flexibility there. But for me, it's always been, well, now that I have this, I can, you know, I don't have to worry so much about what I'm eating because I can, you know, give, if I'm going to eat food, I can give insulin right away instead of having to really manage my, when I would eat food, like manage the time and the amounts. Yeah. Now you also mentioned complications if you, your body isn't receiving insulin. And I I mean, now it sounds like, you know, obviously you're a scientist and you're, you're very, you understand this stuff really well. But when you were a kid and you were first diagnosed, did it bring up an awareness of your mortality and of your lifespan and how this is going to affect it long term? What was that like? Um, when I was, so as a kid, no, because at a kid, you know, in that age being 12, I didn't, you know, you didn't think about it that way. It's just, this is, this is now. Um, but yeah, as, as I've gotten older, you know, the more you start thinking about complications from diabetes and blood sugar control, it, it definitely weighs on you. There's, there's a lot, right. Um, if you think about, just having lots of sugar in your bloodstream, it can build up and cause plaques and cause cardiovascular problems. Um, Sugar in your blood can affect your teeth, right? So my teeth, both through just normal genetics and being type one diabetic um, are terrible uh, because you have sugar in your gums at all times. Right. And so trying to, trying to take care of that is, is another challenge. And then one thing I'm facing now, right, I'm 36 years old and I have glaucoma already. So, um, which is something that I have a family history of, but it's also a complication of diabetes. So, 
you know, not only is it managing blood sugar levels and insulin intake, but it's also managing all these other potential complications that come along with it. Yeah. And, and it sounds like from the way you've described your journey to understanding your own situation, it sounds like you have a community, like you have people who you've spoken to who are also type one diabetics, um, as well as a supportive family. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you met different people in the community and, and who your advocates were when you got sick? Yeah. So I, you know, going back to the beginning, I grew up in a really small town, about maybe 3,500 people at the time, 20 people in my class. Um, so from sixth grade till I got to high school, we knew, we knew one person. As I said, there was no one in my family who was type one diabetic and we knew one kid from town who was. So what was really great was his, his mother came over the week that I came home from the hospital and talked to my parents for a long time. Um, so really those first three, four years were, it was me and my parents and my, and my medical team. Right. Um, once I got to high school, I met more people. I went to a big regional high school, five towns, um, about 1,600 students in the entire high school. Um, and there were probably 10 of us who were type one. And we would run into each other at the nurse's office at lunchtime, checking our blood sugars. Or when we didn't have low blood sugar, we would have to go to the nurse um, just so that the school was making sure we're okay. And um, one of my best friends now, uh, who I met in high school is also type one. So it was, it was meeting people really slowly. And then as I got older and got into, when I went off to college, there wasn't much support there, to be honest. I didn't know that many people there. And then after, one. They, yeah, I don't remember anyone, to be honest. Yeah. And, um, and when I, I met you, just as an anecdotal thing, um, when I met you, you were the first person I'd ever met who had type one. Yeah. And I think, you know, that whole, um, invisible illness thing, it's, it's, it's one of those things that it's very true, especially before insulin pumps came because, you know, to give my medicine, I would give it around my meals and I would go to the bathroom and yeah. give an injection of insulin in, a you know, a bathroom stall yeah. just to not bring attention of what looked like shooting up at before dinner, you know, and um, it's a little bit easier now because you have something that's attached to you. And when you bring it up, people at least know what diabetes is usually type two, you know, my grandmother has that. It's a very different thing. It's a very different um, disease, but it's all kind of the same in some respects. Um, but, um, in terms of finding community, it was in my senior year of college. I ended up doing one of the, uh, juvenile diabetes research foundation. JDRF does these fundraising walks, right? I'm going to go walk three miles. Will you donate money to help find a cure for diabetes? And, um, I was dating someone at the time who really, um, encouraged me to go do it. My, my, my dad had done it years before, but I never really wanted to go do that kind of thing when I was in middle school. Yeah. Um, and so I, I 
did that and I've been doing that ever since. So that's 14, 15 years, which introduced me to the JDRF community. I've met a lot of people. Um, I've started volunteering with them and helping them. And, and that's really been where my community has come since. Yeah. And have you ever found that you faced judgment for having type one as well? Because I think the way that most people are familiar with diabetes is as type two. And usually we see people with type two and it's one of two things. It's age or it's weight or, you know, lack yeah. of activity. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of um, judgment attached to that. And I wonder whether you've ever faced that kind of, you know, sort of having to say like, no, this is different, <clears throat> excuse me, and like explain it to people and the burden of, of having to educate people about your condition. Absolutely. I mean, most people, especially now when they, when they hear the word diabetes, they think of type two, which, you know, is still also mis very much misunderstood. It's, it's still a genetic disorder. Um, it's an inheritable disease. Um, but you know, it can be, it can, the, the effects of it can be lessened through diet and exercise, right? So it has the stigma of, you know, older, overweight people, just because that's how the disease progresses, but it can be, you know, if you can get your diet in shape and you can, and you can exercise well, you can, you can help a lot. Whereas type one, as I said, there's really nothing you can do other than insulin therapy, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, you spend a lot of time trying to explain to people, you know, why what I have is different from what your grandmother has. Yeah. Um, and it's picking and choosing when you do that. Sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes I'm exhausted and don't want to have to do that. But um, I think for the most part, education is key, right? The more people who try to understand what this is and, and what it means, all the better. Yeah, that's very true. So, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to add in like one of the things that I've heard about through other people is that for because of the prevalence of type two diabetes and the stigma that goes along with that, that you, that you reference, um, there are a lot of kids out there who, especially in the media where, you know, people joke about not like eating too much sugar causes diabetes and all this kind of stuff. And the stigma that goes through the media on television, um, kids really feel that a lot. Kids, you know, type one diabetes is, is very much a, child you know it's usually when you're a kid that you get diagnosed and that's hard <laughs> if you're a, a young kid who sees you know your favorite tv show making fun of diabetes that that can be really hard and that is something that a lot of kids face today yeah and that's where it's important i guess to have the community and like to find ways to get involved with you know, like the JDRF, like you have, and to find other people who are like you so that you have a community of people who get it, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So um, how, can you walk us through, you've sort of mentioned it a little bit um, in terms of like what it used to look like when you'd have to run to the bathroom to inject your insulin and now um, you just are checking your levels and adjusting before meals and stuff like that. But can you walk us through a typical day as someone living with type one diabetes and, and, you know, the considerations that you have to make and just give us some more information about that. The biggest thing is my brain never stops. My brain is always thinking about what's my blood sugar level. What is it? 
what's happening now? Is it going up? Is it going down? Um, I'm lucky enough that I have good insurance. Um, so I, I have both the insulin pump and then I have a continuous glucose monitoring system, um, which are still relatively new within the last maybe five, six, seven years. Um, and what that is, it's a second device that goes on my body. It goes, it goes similarly to the pump It goes under the surface of my skin and it gives a readout of what my blood sugar levels are every five minutes. So, so before that, you would only know what your blood sugar was if you tested, right? Using, so you, you prick your finger with a little needle, draw blood, put it on a strip and put it in a meter and it tells you what your blood sugar is. And they said that can be anywhere between 20 and 2000 technically, right? Um, Typically um, someone without diabetes, as I said, was somewhere between 70 and 130. So you would check your blood sugar, and then if it was high, you would give insulin. If it was low, you'd drink juice or bring your sugar up. Um, And now as I'm I'm lucky enough to be able to have this continuous glucose monitor where I can just look at my pump, and it tells me what my blood sugar is. Um, So that takes a little bit of the burden off for me now. Yeah. but I still have to worry, you know, is it going high? Is it going low? You know, I want to eat, I'm starving, but my blood sugars are 350. So maybe I shouldn't have something that like, it's going to be very carbohydrate heavy. I might want something a little bit lighter, even though I'm really hungry. Or on the other end, you'll have times where your blood sugar is low. And the only way to get up low blood sugar is to take sugar in. So you know, it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm really, really tired. My blood sugar's low and I'm eating dinner. Basically I'm eating a whole other meal because I just can't keep it up and you can't, you're full and you feel miserable and you, yeah. there's nothing else you can do. Um, do the monitors wake you up? Like, do they give you alerts if something's extreme? Yeah, usually, I mean, it depends on there's, there's a bunch of different types. There's a bunch of different uh, manufacturers of these now. Um, the one that I work with will let me know if I'm going low, let me know if I'm going high. Um, I recently upgraded to a, a new model, which actually will give small amounts of insulin or stop giving me insulin, depending on what my blood sugars are doing. So if I'm, I'm all of a sudden coming down, my blood sugars are coming down really, really fast will stop giving me that insulin because giving more insulin is only going to make it come down faster. And that puts me in a dangerous situation. And on the reverse, if I'm going, my blood sugar is going high, it will start giving these micro address adjustments to really help me stay in a good range. So now is a much better time to be a type one diabetic. Than it, it gets, <laughs> it gets better every single year. It, every yeah. single year, there's something coming that there's, there's always promises of new technology. Um, but the big thing is with like a lot of these things, there's no cure yet. So there's technology that makes life a lot easier, um, which is fantastic. And I wouldn't trade that for anything, but you know, there's still no cure. There's, there's ideas, but that's about it. And because the actual root cause as to why your immune system attacks your, your insulin producing cells is not fully clear that makes it really hard to go after. So, yeah, 
And that must be really frustrating because all you want is to not have to live like this. Like I, if you have your druthers, I imagine, right? Uh, absolutely. And it's one of those things like if there were ever to be a cure for diabetes, I don't know if I'd ever sleep well, <laughs> you know, just, just waiting for it to come back. Right. Because even if there was something that had the promise of you're good, you're fine. I would still lie awake waiting for it to come back just because this has been my life for so long now. This episode is sponsored by Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive because of my Hashimoto's and medications, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. The Wave was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions, but because the technology is new, it can be pricey. So for those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you also listen to Uninvisible, they're offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Do you think, I mean, it sounds like there's a fear there, like, you know, that it has given you an awareness, right? But also bred a, a certain alarm in you, I guess, you know, so that you're constantly monitoring and, and your brain never shuts off, as you said. Exactly. I don't, I don't go more than five minutes without thinking about where's my blood sugar, what's happening. And how um, has that impacted your relationships and your work? Um, it makes everything harder. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm lucky enough that, you know, for my relationships, I, I married my best friend who I've known since high school. She's my, my other friend that I mentioned who has type one, she's known her for longer than I have. So she knows this disease really well. Um, so she's there to support me through it. Um, so that, has been great. And, and in some respects, it's an easy path because I didn't have to explain something to somebody new. Um, but you know, that's always a fear too. When you start, I remember dating people in high school and college and you have to explain to them, well, this is who I am. This is part of my life. You know, this is how to save my life. If something goes wrong, um, I have to do that when I start a new job. I have to find somebody that I trust and say, um, if my blood sugar were to go really, really, really low and I were to pass out, this is what you have to do to bring me back to life. And um, it's uh, knock on wood. I'm, I'm very happy. I've never been in that kind of situation yet, but you know, at some point that's going to happen. And in terms of, I mean, I always ask people about this in terms of work, especially, is it something that you disclose to employers when you're applying for jobs or do you wait until you have the job and, and as you say, find someone that you trust to tell them how to take care of you if anything happens? Yeah. I mean, I, it's definitely not something that I disclose in an interview process because obviously that would be illegal, but it, you never want to do something like that. And it's illegal to ask. I don't think it's illegal to tell. Well, yeah, yeah. It's illegal. Well, it would be illegal for them to um, deny me a position okay. based on that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, it always takes me a while. Um, I, I spoke on a panel 
um, at a um, one of these juvenile diabetes research foundation events. So it was me and three other people. And this same question came up from the audience. And they asked, you know, when you start a new job, do you let them know? And it was really funny because all four of us said, no, we don't. You know, this is, this is my this is my life. This is my private space. Um, and then we actually had, I think, two or three people in the audience who worked in HR. And they spoke up right away and said, you should absolutely let people know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, so I've been better about that since that day. Um, my work now knows, but you can, it's one thing to tell HR just so that they know. And it's one thing to tell your coworkers as well. Um, so I've always just kind of waited until it comes up because, you know, as I said, I have an insulin pump. It looks like a pager. People always say, why do you have a beeper? Um, <laughs> I think, I think my boss, my boss found out because, we went on a business trip and flying is really hard um, when you have an insulin pump and a CGM because uh, they can't necessarily go through the new neutron backscattering security oh. devices. So, you um, so doctor's note, right? So you can bring, I, yeah, you're supposed to bring a doctor's note. I never do. I just tell them that they're well-versed in this at this point especially in the United States. If I were going out of the country, I think I'd probably bring a doctor's note. Um, but I have to request a pat down. So I, every time I go through security, I'm getting pat down by you know the TSA agents. And, um, and that's how a couple of my coworkers found out because they went right on through security and then they were waiting for me. And I had to say, well, this is why. Um, because it, it inevitably comes up with everybody. So I just personally just wait until it does. Yeah. Well, and I suppose it's also judging that, that boundary. Um, and when it, when you, you have friends at work and when they're just your coworkers, you know, that professional personal boundary is one that, especially in a new job, you tread very carefully, I think. Yeah. And, and part of my reason for doing it too, is I just make it so it's normal, you know, like I'm not hiding anything like give my insulin. If I need to step out of a meeting to go have juice or some kind of sugar to bring my, my levels back up. I just do it. And I don't make it something I'm hiding. I don't make a big deal out of it. I just say, this is normal. This is who I am. And then, so it's, it's kind of a conscious decision to, to treat it that way instead of making it something bigger or lesser than it is. Well, it's interesting because you, you, you talk about sort of, you know, treating it as, as normal, but also you do have to prioritize it in your day to day, don't you? Because like if your blood sugar drops, you have to do something about that immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one of, you know, you were talking about fears earlier. And one of the fears that I have is, you know, I'm, I'm further along in my career. I have to make decisions. Sometimes they're on the fly. Um, I have a couple of employees that I'm responsible for. And one thing that happens when you have low blood sugar is, uh, you can't think well, <laughs> like your brain goes to mush or you become really, really irritable. So I'm very conscious of, you know, if my blood sugar is low, I'm not making any important decisions. I'm trying to not interact with people as much as possible because it could have ramifications in other ways. So it's as soon as I've, you know, having the, having the continuous glucose monitor that alerts me to a low blood sugar is fantastic because at the first sign of it going low, 
I take care of it. I don't wait. Yeah. And how did it look? Also, you know, you've you mentioned you've got a toddler. What's it like raising a kid, especially a little one, um, you know, and managing your own symptoms, but also is he aware of the fact that daddy has type one diabetes and daddy has to run and have some juice or, you know, like how did you sort of tell him about all of this stuff? Yeah. I mean, we haven't, he's only two and a half, so we haven't gotten into what it is and what it means too deep. We have talked about it and, you know, I have nieces and nephews, so I've done this with little kids quite a bit. Yeah. Practice. Um, you know, so he knows, he knows, daddy's medicine he knows my i let him play with the pump i let him turn the light you know there's a light on it so i let him turn the light on and off um because i have to teach him not to pull it because it's a cord that's attached to my body so not only does it hurt but he could rip it out um so i let him do as much as he wants you know in terms of checking it out and asking questions um we don't he doesn't drink juice at our house, but I need juice from time to time. And so we just call it daddy's medicine. And so he, he understands that. And, you know, he knows that I need medicine and I go to the doctor, but we haven't gotten to the point as to why. Um, so similar to what I was saying about work, it's just making it as normal as possible. You know, like this is just what it is. It's not anything. Um, but to the same thing, right? If my blood sugar goes low and it's just me and him at the house, it's it's scary. It can be really scary for me. He's not old enough yet to use the phone if something were to really go wrong. Um, he's not quite old enough to really understand that, you know, daddy needs to take a break and sit. So it's it's tough. So I do find that when it's just the two of us, I'm even more conscious of where I am just because I have to be. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that must be a very heavy burden to carry. It, yeah, it can be. And, and, you know, from time to time it can restrict me from what I'm trying to do. Like if it's just the two of us, we're probably not going to go for a really, really long walk far away without me bringing, you know, a huge back tech back full of food and snacks and, mm. um, the nice thing about being friends with uh, somebody who has type one diabetes is they always have snacks, uh, usually good ones too. Yeah, so um, it's great. And the more the more that you have friends who understand that, like I, I've had friends in college who uh, we I, I had a friend who we went hiking with one time, and uh, unprompted she just brought a whole bag of snacks, which was great. And I was like, oh, thanks, mom. Like this is great. <laughs> The more you can let people know, the more people will look out for it. Yeah. Well, and, and you can also make friends with the people who always have the snacks. <laughs> yes, that's not a bad. It's not a bad thing either. <laughs> so, you mentioned that you've done a little bit of work, you know, being on panels with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Has your experience turned into advocacy on a larger scale beyond that? What What else have you worked with them on? Um. Not a ton, to be honest, I I haven't done as much as I'd like just because work, kids, family, time commitments, right? Um, but I I work with JDRF. Um, as I said, they do a big fundraising walk every year. Um, so I work with the New England um, Central Mass chapter of JDRF and 
try to help with family coaching. So um, one of the things we do is anytime there's a new family who registers for the walk within their first or second year, we assign a a coach just to kind of check in with them and offer them support on, you know, giving them information about the event as well as just being a contact person. Because a lot of times you'll see families, you know, they're, they're, their kids four years old just got diagnosed and the parents want to do something because they feel helpless. Like they feel like they can't do anything to help their kid. So one of the things that they feel like they can do is do these fundraising events, which do raise money towards research, towards a cure. Um, So being a family coach, you know, some, some people want to interact a lot. Some people don't, but really it's kind of being like a first line of defense of, Hey, I understand what you're going through. If you need anything, I'm here. If if I'm not helpful for you, here's six other people you could reach out to. Mm. Um, so I've always, you know, through friends or through family or through anybody I hear, if I hear that somebody was just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, I give them my phone number, I give them my email and say, call me anything you want. So you haven't already established it. Noah's a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try, you know, um, so I'm not taking the advocacy to like that bigger level, but I try to do it on a very personal level, uh, because of time commitment. Well, yeah. Like th- those personal relationships can also be more, um, specific and sometimes more fruitful. Yeah. That support. Yeah. And as I said, you know, I I remember when I was first diagnosed, I really didn't want much to do with anything. Sixth grade, kind of like, what, what is this? But people reached out to my parents a lot to try to help them. And like, I really, in hindsight, that's a really nice thing. And that's something that the community could provide and just taking the time to um, offer help, um, an ear, uh, someone to talk to is yeah. it mean a lot to people. And you're you're obviously close with your parents. Were they your advocates when you were a kid? And did you? What was the transition like when you sort of became your own <laughs> man? And you know, like, them take care <laughs> of you, and then forcing them to let go. I mean, was it harder for them to let go and like let you go away to college and all that kind of stuff because of the the way that you live your life? Yes, it was horrible. <laughs> um, so. My my parents were fantastic. I mean, as I said, I, and this happens with a lot of kids who get diagnosed, um, and some never really turn and take care of it. Like, it's, it's kind of a, I don't want to deal with this. This is something I don't want to do. Like, the first, oh man, probably three, at least three years, my parents gave me all my shots. Like I didn't do it myself. They did it for me. Um, You know, part of it was I was still a little young and a little nervous about it. Um, And part of it was they were doing it. So I didn't want to, you know, and um, but then I got to the point where I started doing that. And then obviously when you go off to college, you have to be in charge of yourself. Um, And then that transition where it's probably, a uh, sophomore year in college where I, my mother and I got in so many fights and it really, it really came down to just saying, you know, you have done this amazing work for me and helped me so much, but 
this is my time. I have to, this is how I have to, I need a clean cut to be able to say, I'm in charge of this. This is on me now, you know, and, and it was really hard. <laughs> it was really hard, but we've moved past that. It was a short, short amount of time. And, um, you know, and now we talk about it all the time and she's there for me and my parents are both there for me. So it's great. Yeah. Well, and it, it's the way you, you describe it too. I mean, I think people have these conversations with their parents as they're becoming adults, regardless of whether or not yeah. they have a chronic illness. Right. But it just makes it that much more intense because they're that much, your parents are that much more worried about what if something happens to you, you know, there is the mortality factor. And because when you're someone's baby, you know, God yeah. forbid that you should be suffering alone and they always want to be there, you know? So, um, it's interesting. It's just like, it magnifies that conversation, doesn't it? Absolutely. And going, and as I said, in my situation, they were doing almost 95% of my care. Mm-hmm. And then to go from 95% to me saying, I got this, zero percent for you like don't tell me what to do I, I i'll take care of myself from here on out um that is horrible and really 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 hard um but it was something that i really needed at the time and you know it's on me and the fact that i wasn't ready to do it earlier to help them with that transition um but at the time i that's exactly what i needed just that clean break um i wanted to ask you about your thoughts on, cause you're talking about like you know, people's insurance and stuff. Um, right. the insulin crisis that's going on right now with the rising cost of insulin and how this is affecting diabetics, um, and their access to being well, um, what are your thoughts on all of this that's going on right now? Well, I can start off by saying I'm I'm probably not in the best position to talk about it too much, to be honest, because I am very lucky to have really, really good health insurance, both yeah. through my work and through my wife's work. Yeah. Um, so I haven't personally had to deal with that too much, but it's scary. I mean, at the end of the day, people, this is a drug that people need to live um, and I do know a lot of people are having trouble getting it. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, I do work in the pharmaceutical industry and I do understand, um, that it can be hard to produce supply and that that can cause reasons for drug prices to go up and it does fluctuate from time to time. Um, but there, there's a solution somewhere and it, it's just a scary time to think about. And I, and it's something that I think about all the time. I, I need to have a job that has good, good health insurance because without it, yeah, I don't know what my life looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, as I said, I have, there's all this great technology out there and because I have good insurance, I have all of it. Mm. Um, but I ran into a situation where the really, really good insurance I had didn't cover the continuous glucose monitor that I've gotten accustomed to. So I'm paying for a second insurance as well, just oh, wow. to cover one. One thing. device. Yeah. So it's cheaper for you to pay for a second, like an independent health insurance to cover that than to just pay for it out of pocket. Yeah. It, it boiled down to paying something like a hundred dollars a month to have me covered for this insurance versus $250 a month 
for the for the CGM sensors, um, which I had been doing for about a for lucky enough to be able to do that for about a year before I figured out what I needed to do. So right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy, and I mean, we, you talk about like how, of course, you know, um, these fluctuations can happen in the pharmaceutical industry, but. My understanding with particular regard to insulin is that insulin itself is not hard to produce. Um, and the recipe for it has been around a long time, but you may know better than I do. Um, I don't know if I can get too into that, to be honest, <laughs> that part of it. Um, mostly because I'm not educated enough to speak towards it. Um, you know, and, and those are those are questions about, um, you know, name brand drugs versus generic drugs versus versus insurance versus an unfortunate example of the problems that our country is facing right now in general. Right. It's just it's just all of these things boil down to to this one specific example out of many other hundreds of examples. Um but we need to figure out a solution. And the problem is, I don't know if anyone knows <laughs> the well, solution at this point or is willing to put their neck out there. To yeah, well, and that you do have to find out, find a solution because for diabetics, insulin is life, right? So yes. yep. if you're not getting it, it is life and death. Yeah. And I know that, you know, pharmaceutical companies in general will work with people to get reduced price drugs depending on what it is and who they are. And, um, uh, there are Facebook groups that I am part of in the diabetes community. Um, I don't engage with them much, but I do read kind of the posts that come through. And I know that people have had success looking at, um, different suppliers at different prices. And it's just, it's just paying attention to what's out there. Uh, to be honest, I don't know the full story or the truth behind it other than when, when it's obvious that you have this big population who need one particular drug, we need to figure out what to do. Yeah. Well, and it, it sounds like um, having those community boards and like these Facebook groups, if, if you're a diabetic and you're not part of those and you need community, it's a great way to get in yes. condition, right? And talk to other people with your condition. Yes, absolutely. Like, it's not something that is particularly great for me. It's not something I engage with. But I, from reading it, I can see there are so many people who just check in with each other every morning. Um, they, there's this thing where people post what their morning blood sugar is. And a lot of it's just to let people know that they're okay. You know, they make friends through this and maybe don't have, maybe are isolated and don't have other people to touch base with. And it's just a way to say, hey, I'm here. I'm fine. So um, I think we've covered so much today. Um, and I like to wrap up these interviews uh, with some top three lists, which everyone will be very familiar with at this point. Sure. <laughs> and I'm wondering what your top three tips are for someone who suspects they may have an invisible chronic illness and specifically type one diabetes, but what would your top three tips be for those people or potentially for their advocates? If it's, you know, little kids and their parents, what would you, do, would you recommend to these people? Well, number one is don't wait, do something, um, go see a doctor, go ask questions. Um, don't wait. There's, there's no reason to wait. As soon as you're, you're suspicious that something 
is off or might be going on, get started. Uh, it might be a long journey with depending on depending on what it is. As I said, with something like type one diabetes, it's pretty clear cut. The symptoms and the diagnosis is very straightforward. Um, but for some of these other ones, it it may take a long time to find the right doctor or to find the right person to think about it. Um, so that would, that would be one. <laughs> uh, a second one would be to, you know, once, once you are diagnosed with whatever's going on to be kind to yourself. Um, one thing that happens with a lot of people with type one diabetes is your life is about control. It's about controlling your blood sugars, regulating your insulin levels. Um, there's a, there's a test. It's, it's a, a hemoglobin A1C test that is done both at diagnosis and pretty much every um, endocrinology appointment that you'll go to, depending on your insurance, the frequency of when they do this. And what it does is it, it measures the percentage of your hemoglobin that has basically sugar molecules on it. Um, so the more of your hemoglobin in your blood that has sugar, the higher your average blood sugar has been over the last three months. Um, so really, a lot of people end up boiling down their care and self-worth to this one number that you get every three months. Um, and you're so much more than that. <laughs> um, I know for me, and, and as I said, a lot of type one diabetics, this, this control and this shooting for the right number can lead to um, depression. Um, it was something I went through my sophomore year of college. Uh, and a lot of it was tied to letting go and letting go of the control and forgiving yourself and not dwelling on one thing. Um, and I think that's extremely important just in life. But especially if you're day-to-day and you're in charge of your own self-care and sometimes you're doing well and sometimes you're not, understand what happened, forgive yourself, and move forward. Um, and a third one, I don't know if I have a third one, to be honest, but those, those <laughs> two are, those two I think are the ones that I care about. Um, and how often and in what way, like what, what your top three um, guilty pleasures or secret indulgences or like comfort activities are, if you can feel your levels dropping, um, what makes you happy? Um, so in terms of that, the nice thing about being on an insulin pump is I can give insulin to cover whatever I want, right? You, you think about a, a carbohydrate to insulin ratio. And so if I want to have a big juicy cheeseburger that, whatever, you know, that's not good for anybody, but it tastes delicious. I just have to think about, you know, how many carbohydrates are in that? How much fat do I think is going to be in that? Cause that's going to affect me hours later. And then I can give the medicine and maybe it covers it. Maybe it doesn't, but I can always correct it later. Right. Um, and then the other thing that's nice is uh, when your blood sugar does go low, you need sugar to bring it up. Uh, I really, really like 
peanut butter cups. Oh. Uh, uh, my son really likes Kit Kats, so we often have peanut butter cups and Kit Kats in the house, which is nice. <laughs> no juice, um, but Kit Kats and peanut butter cups. You know, it all works. <laughs> <laughs> Some work better and healthier and faster than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously the trade-off is I still have to worry about cardiovascular and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. um, in the moment, it's really good. And I will say that when you have low blood sugar, like legit low blood sugar, mm-hmm. um, food tastes so good. Like it has never tasted better than when your blood sugar is in the 40s. Yeah. Um, Oreos specifically. Oreos. Um, Oreos, yeah. My wife doesn't allow us to have Oreos in the house because when your blood sugar goes low, as I said earlier, your brain kind of doesn't really work. And what takes over is that whole, I need to get my blood sugar up. So what happens with me with Oreos is I'll probably eat 20. (laughs) And that's obviously going to be problems setting my blood sugar high afterwards. Um, But as I said, they, they taste so good. (laughs) They're great. (laughs) And I, you also mentioned like, you know, about being kind to yourself. Are there any other practices that you have to be kind to yourself, you know, and, and give yourself a little treat, even if it's not a food thing, like other things that you do? Um, I think for me, it's always more of a mental conscious effort because I'm somebody who, um, my default setting is to beat myself up about everything. Um, so for me, it's really just taking that extra time mentally to say, no, this is fine. It's okay. Um, meditation has worked for me quite a bit in the past to just clear your head. Um, music is my everything. Um, I can't deal being in a space that's quiet. Um, it just changes, it changes everything. It changes the mood. It just allows me to forget what's going on. So just things like that, just ways to realize that life, life is amazing. And, uh, to, to not worry about all those fine details because it's going to sort itself out. Right. So, yeah. And do you think also, this is a question that's been nagging me to ask you as well. Um, do you think that you became a scientist because you're a type one diabetic, because you've always had this sort of different approach to your own health and, you know, you've had to have a scientific understanding of what's going on in your body. Yes, absolutely. And, um, I mean, so I had, I hated science going into high school. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, I took, um, you know, there were different levels of science and I would make sure not to take the highest level because I'm like, I don't like it. I'm not good at it. I didn't care about it. And then I had a teacher my freshman year who. Of college. High school. High school. A teacher of freshman year of high school who basically changed my life. Um, He was the type of teacher who was the biggest. You hated him until the end of the year when you realized that you loved him. Um, And he made us do kind of uh, presentations on emerging topics, right? Um, In science, just kind of open ended. It was like a general science. It wasn't biology. It wasn't chemistry. It was just science, right? Um, And I gave a presentation to the class about type 1 diabetes and and insulin pump. And as I said, I wanted nothing to do with either science or and I was very shy about my my own personal 
diabetes at the time. And it was the first time I ever talked about it openly in front of people my age. Mm. Um, and I look back at that and that was the moment that things started to turn. Uh, the next year I took kind of a lower level biology class. I got like a 98% in the class and then tried to take a lower level chemistry class. And that teacher said, absolutely not. So that was another one that set me on the path. But yeah, I mean, my life is a science experiment. It is the, it is every day. It's a science experiment. I have no idea. It's you try something out and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, and at my, at my job recently, um, I, we do these little like bio sketches over lunch just so that people get to know who you are. Um, and I talked about, you know, being diabetic and the work that I do with JDRF. And um, one of the people there was saying about how it's really interesting because when you work with people who are working on cancer research, they all say, you know, I know someone who had cancer and this is why I'm here. And when you work with people this isn't necessarily what I do personally, but when you work with people in like an autoimmune space, people will say, I have an autoimmune disease and that's why they're there. And, and absolutely it's, it's, that's why I do what I do well, to try to help other people. Yeah. And it's, it all started with an opportunity for empowerment and it yep. sort of just ratcheted up from there. Yep. Well, Noah, thank you so much for being on the show today. I, I'm so glad that we got to catch up a little bit <laughs> and I got to. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fantastic. That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.